from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Ian Bond, the CER's Director of Foreign Policy. Ian was the lead researcher on a recent CER insight that looked at how Europe will change without the UK. And the story of this insight is that in 2016, the CER made 10 predictions about the effect of Brexit on future EU policy. And now that Brexit could be imminent, we looked again at the predictions we've made, taking into account the developments of the last years. Because just for context, when we wrote the first piece, Donald Trump had not yet been elected president, the Eurozone was not slowing down, this was before the surge of Eurosceptic forces in Italy, a different time really. So Ian, we've got our work cut out for us for this podcast. Let's look at the CER's predictions, see how they stood up and where we are now. And rather than going one by one, I want to tackle this in groups, if that's all right. Yep, that makes sense to me. Wonderful. So first, let's talk about economics. So in the original piece, we had said, or I should say our economists had said that even without the UK, there will still be a consensus for liberalizing the internal market, that divisions within the Eurozone will make rapid integration very unlikely and that progress towards a capital markets union will continue, but that its nature will change without the UK's voice in the EU. So almost three years later, how did our economists do? Uh, our economists did rather well, I would say. The question of liberal economic policy, it seems it's still going to continue, not very fast. The integration of services markets is still quite a difficult thing to achieve. And France and Germany would like to build some European champions in the industrial sector in a rather more interventionist way than the UK would probably like. But on the whole, there are a lot of governments within the EU who are still committed to uh, liberalisation. And indeed, 17 of them, at the initiative of the Finnish Prime Minister, wrote to Donald Tusk with their priorities for deepening the single market over the next five years. So I think that's quite encouraging. On the Eurozone, as you say, the Eurozone is entering a bit of a downturn. The French ideas, or at least uh, President Macron's ideas for Eurozone integration, don't seem to be making a lot of progress. And I think the, the question on the capital market is whether the EU decides to try to tap the pool of capital in the city of London or to concentrate on its own regulatory autonomy. And the signs are at the moment that it is doing the latter. And so you may have a slightly more closed European capital market than, uh, than otherwise. All right, great. So it looks indeed like they were pretty spot on with their predictions. I want to move to climate change next. We said that without the UK, the EU27 might become less committed to ambitious climate change targets and that the EU may adopt a more centralized system of energy market regulation. How has that played out so far? 
Yeah, that's that I'm afraid has stood up all too well in the sense that although the UK has set itself a target of reducing CO2 emissions from 1990 levels by 57% by 2030, the EU target is only 40% and a commission attempt to increase that target to 45% was seen off by countries like Germany and Poland. Uh, which are still, I'm afraid, addicted to their fossil fuels. One of those predictions where we would have preferred to be wrong then. Foreign and defense policy is next. We're just speeding through this, but we've got a lot on our plate for this podcast. Foreign and defense policy. EU foreign policy, you said, will remain intergovernmental, but may become less active on the world stage and less likely to use sanctions as an instrument of pressure. And then we also said that there may be more enthusiasm for European defense cooperation without the UK, but less capability, and that after Brexit, the EU-NATO relationship may become more difficult. You and I made these predictions in 2016. How did we do? Well, again, I think I, I, I wish we'd been wrong. If you look at the EU's performance on the foreign policy side, you know, it has not been very active in some of the big crises like Syria, Libya, Libya, Yemen, where one might have expected that the EU would get involved because these crises have had an effect on Europe's security, on the flow of migrants and so on. And I think that even before the Brexit vote, the UK was uh, less less active than it might previously have been and it was one of the countries that made most use of the common foreign and security policy mechanisms in the EU to pursue its own foreign policy objectives. And in the defence sector, you know, there's, obviously we've had the launch of, of uh, permanent structured cooperation, PESCO, and uh, the start of the European Defence Fund. So those are positives. But the amount that's being spent by member states is still pretty inadequate and I think there's still a tendency to mistake the rhetoric of strategic autonomy for the abilities to to carry out operations on our own and the fact is that Europe is a very very long way away from being able to carry out operations on any significant scale without relying on external help. Yes I completely agree with you on that and also there possibly hasn't been enough serious thinking yet on the side of the EU about how to integrate the UK into these efforts after Brexit. That I think is also true and and that applies probably even more to the the next section um, of our predictions which was about justice and home affairs and law enforcement cooperation. That's right. Our colleague Camino said in 2016 that without the UK, the EU's ability to tackle cross-border organized crime and terrorism would be reduced. So what's the verdict now? Yeah, this is, this is one where we really wish we had been wrong. But there is a, a big gap between the level of cooperation that has existed previously and what we're likely to have after Brexit. And... Uh, no very clear path forward because the legal obstacles to maintaining that degree of cooperation are quite high. 
And so we're likely to find that some of the really useful EU tools like the European arrest warrant that European countries have used to get suspects out of the UK and the UK has used to get suspects out of EU countries, most famously the Costa del Crime in, uh, in Spain. Those, those instruments are going to be replaced by much more cumbersome procedures that take much longer and are much less certain of success. We did also talk in 2016 and again in this insight about the institutional setup of the EU and how that might change without the UK. And we said that the European Commission and Parliament will be less likely to reflect British ways of thinking and working. Do we still think that? That, that seems to be inevitable. Uh, the next European Parliament is likely to have a lot of problems that have nothing to do with Brexit because of the rise of populist parties, anti-European movements in a number of EU countries. And they will probably do quite well in the European Parliament elections and uh, they will be potentially quite disruptive. But some of the cross-party working that British MEPs were able to do will disappear when they leave. Uh, so Conservative and Labour MEPs in the past have worked together to promote relatively economically liberal policies. With the, the loss of some of the expertise that they had built up, you're less likely to see some of that cross-party working in the, in the future. And if you look beyond the Parliament, if you look at uh, the, the Commission and the other institutions, one thing about the, the British was that they successfully injected British ways of operating a civil service into many parts of the EU bureaucracy to the point where French Commission officials sometimes complained that uh, the Commission had become an Anglo-Saxon body. Uh, and it's likely that after Brexit, those habits of working will gradually be uh, eliminated by age and retirement from the institutions. Now, it may be that the institutions have so internalised those ways of working that it won't make that much difference. But I think that there is some sign that without the British saying, well, this is a good way of doing it, that other bureaucratic habits may take over. Interesting. We, we did also do some thinking on how the balance of power in the EU might develop without the UK. And we said that by increasing the influence of Germany, that Brexit could heighten insecurities in countries with suspicions of Berlin. What are we seeing on that front today? Well, on the whole, um, I think largely because of the character of Angela Merkel, we haven't really seen that. She has been quite cautious in many ways. She, she has been, perhaps wisely, keen to make sure that Germany didn't look like a bully within the European Union. But one negative side effect of, of that has been that in the defence and security field in particular, Germany has rather underperformed or punched below its weight. It remains to be seen whether, for example, after the Germany and France signed the Aachen Treaty uh, and agreed to, to increase their defence cooperation, whether that actually results in more capacity, more European capability. So that's an area where actually I'd say we probably got it wrong and thought that Germany would be, become more assertive than in fact it has been. Yeah, it remains to be seen if the greater risk is Germany being seen as a bully or Germany refusing to lead. 
I was going to say maybe a question for you to answer yourself, but I suppose that we have to start asking ourselves what Angela Merkel's successor, the famous AKK, is going to be like. Uh, you know, we have already heard her talking about uh, a German or a European aircraft carrier. And I guess there's a question there as to whether she may want to be a bit more muscular on the international stage than Angela Merkel has been. Yeah, I think she's currently sort of working through what her positions on foreign and defence policy might be with a bit of trial and error, possibly, especially when we're talking about the aircraft carrier. She also hasn't been elected yet. She is a likely successor, but we're not sure yet that she will indeed be the next German Chancellor. I want to come back to our final prediction, which I think is a good prediction to end on because we were wrong and because that's a good thing. We said in 2016 that Brexit would embolden Eurosceptic movements across Europe. Ian, where do we stand in the EU almost three years after the referendum? Well, even we who thought that Brexit on the whole was going to be a negative could not have foreseen just what a ghastly process the last two years, three years nearly would be. And I certainly think that Eurosceptic parties that hailed Brexit in 2016 certainly didn't foresee that. So the idea that we had at the time that there would be more parties calling for, you know, Frexit and Italexit and whatever other exits you can think of, that just hasn't come to, come to pass at all. The fact is that the British, whether they wanted to or not, have provided a salutary warning to others of just how difficult it is to leave the EU without doing serious damage to your own country. Ian, thank you very much to going through this with us. I would highly recommend that all listeners read the full piece, which you can find on the CEA website, uh, Europe Without the UK. Thank you very much, Ian. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.